Hello, David Oakes here, and if you haven't worked it out already, this special season of Trees A Crowd is taking a temporary diversion from our usual format. This year, we're colonising new riverbanks to squeeze out a metaphor loosely related to today's trees. But rest assured, we'll be back on track once more when I'm allowed to thrust my microphone into strangers' faces again. So, this season is all about our native trees, or to be more precise, this year... I will be... Uploading the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. Today we're looking at a huge group of native species that you'll all know really well. It's a group I've had to whittle down a little, but for simplicity's sake, and I'll explain why in a bit, these are trees number 6 through to 14-ish known scientifically as the genus Salix, or to most people as... The Willows. The Willows. You all know willows. Flowy, delicate, wistful, sensitive trees, billowing branches that rest across babbling brooks. They remind you of picnics, punting, and pre-Raphaelite suicide, yes? No? Then perhaps you're a bookworm, and you know the willow as something mysterious, protective and powerful, such as Tolkien's malign-ent old man willow, or J.K. Rowling's nimbus-shattering whomping willow, or, arguably the most powerful willows of them all, Kenneth Graham's windy variant. Graham's willows possess the power to fracture the minds of Ratty, Molly and the baby otter Portly into forgetting a magical encounter with the god Pan, because, and I quote, lest the awful remembrance should remain and grow and overshadow mirth and pleasure. Seriously, go check out chapter 7 of Wind of the Willows. That is some trippy. Well, either way, you're wrong. In actual fact, none of this honestly represents the willow. In reality, willows are highly immoral, incestuous, sex-obsessed bastards. And here's why. There are a whomping 26 willow species in the British Isles alone, with around 400 in the world at large. On top of this, pretty much all of these trees hybridise very readily. And by hybridise, I mean have sexy crossbred babies. At the last count, the British Isles alone included 69 of these amorous arboreal halflings. Now, most hybrids in nature, be it animal or vegetable are infertile. Think of the mule, a hybrid between a horse and a donkey, or the zorse, zebra and horse, liger, lion and tiger, or even the wolfin, whale and dolphin. That's a thing. Each of them are infertile hybrids of two species from the same genus. Now, what is very unusual about the willows is that the 69 British hybrids remain fertile, meaning they have the potential to back-cross with other willows. It is sick, it is wrong, and their parents would be appalled if indeed their parents weren't also filthy swingers as well. What is laudable, however, is just how good they are at reproduction, and that is because willows can reproduce using an array of tactics. Willows can be pollinated by the wind, and willows can be pollinated by pollinators, and willows can also reproduce without sex, which botanists call vegetative reproduction, and I call boring. The crack willow, for example, is called the crack willow because of this vegetative reproduction. Its slender branches crack off. They then float downstream, embed themselves in a new part of the riverbank, and can grow into a new, albeit genetically identical, willow. All this has made willow an incredible coloniser of new terrain. It is a pioneer species. 
and following the last ice age was amongst the very first trees to establish in waterlogged Britain. But exactly how many true willow species are you likely to spot in Britain? Well, that's tricky. Ignoring the 69 hybrids, which I've just mentioned, the eight species that you are very unlikely to come across, and ignoring the nine low-growing and dwarf mountain willows, which don't reach five metres in height, so don't make my list and sound more like something out of Middle-earth, we are left with just nine species of native-ish willows for me to include in this podcast. These include the bay, grey, tea-leaved, goat and purple willows, which, according to my criteria, are true natives to Britain, and the common osier, crack, white and almond willows, which are not. Now, these latter four willows were probably introduced to Britain by ancient man, but are now extremely well established in our countryside. That said, if you think I'm having my cake and eating it by including these aliens in a list of native species, well, it is my podcast. Get your own. Anyway, I'm doing it for a reason. These trees are known as archaeophytes. Botanically speaking, in Britain, archaeophytes are a plant species which was probably first introduced by man, going back to the Bronze Age and before, any time up until 1492. But why 1492, I hear you cry? Well, I'll give you a clue. It ties in neatly to this week's theme of Willow as a successful coloniser. Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492 and kicked off the Columbian Exchange. The Columbian Exchange was a mass movement of plant and animal life from the old world to the new world and the new world to the old world. It was amazing, era-defining, and nothing bad happened at all as a result of it. <coughs> Smallpox. <coughs> Measles. <coughs> 80 to 95% of the Native American population died. Fortunately, however, out of this disaster, humankind learned a valuable lesson. We learnt that moving from one part of the globe to another is a fantastic way to spread killer pathogens, and subsequently we never made this mistake again. Hmm. Anyway, back to our four archaeophyte willows. What is interesting, Geek Alert, is that it is these archaeophytes which possess the iconic long and thin and indeed willowy leaf silhouette. Our native willow leaves are far stubbier. The keen-eared amongst you will also have noticed the absence of the iconic weeping willow, but the weeping willow was introduced from Asia in the 18th century and did not like Britain at all. It now only exists here in a couple of hybridised forms or on pretty chinoiserie porcelain, but as a point of interest, Another geek alert. The weeping willow gets its scientific name, Salix Babylonica, from an incorrect extract in early translations of the Bible. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. In reality, the trees growing along the Euphrates River in Babylon were most likely a species of poplar, which are indeed in the same family as willow, but we'll look at them next week. So, despite the weeping willow, and willows in general, seeming synonymous with Englishness, much of what we view to be a native willow is in fact imported. Much like the half-American Winston Churchill, for example, or the half-French Isambard Kingdom Brunel, or even the all-Greek patron St George. As such, let me take this opportunity to stress that although this series is looking at what has been defined as native, pretty much every species on these islands came from outside originally. We would be nowhere without immigration. And I'll leave that there. 
Willow has been used by man for ages. They have been used to make wicker furniture, wicker prams, wicker baskets, wicker coffins, wicker fish traps, wicker handbags, wicker goldfish bowls. Hello, I'm Adam Shaw, and whilst my fellow Woodland Trust ambassador is rabbiting on about what one can and hypothetically could make out of wicker, I thought I'd tell you a little bit about the podcast I produce for the Woodland Trust. It's called Woodland Walks, in which I explore some of the wonderful landscapes of the UK, often getting lost in woods and meeting amazing people on the way, talking about what nature and the woodland landscape means to them, including such people as the presenter of BBC's Gardener's Question Time, Cathy Clugston, TV historian and adventurer Dan Snow, author of The Pearl Earring, Tracy Chevalier, and the children's laureate and author of How to Train Your Dragon, Cresta Cowell. It's full of adventures and misadventures, and I hope good fun, as well as providing the opportunity for virtual walks among some of the UK's most beautiful landscapes. I do hope you can join us on our next Woodland Walk podcast. And now... Back to David. Wicker slippers, wicker sheep tongs, wicker crankshafts, wicker whiff-waff paddles, wicker dog leads, wicker cars, that's actually true, and even wicker men used to off up Edward Woodward to the pagan gods, which reminds me, Ollie, he's my long-suffering editor. Ollie, are you there? Yes, David. Right, what do you call a man with four planks of wood on his head? I don't know, David. What do you call a man with four planks of wood on his head? I don't know either, Ollie, but Edward Woodward Wood. Ah. <sighs> But, wicker men aside, perhaps the most incredible thing that we make from willow isn't made from wicker at all. It is medicinal. Part botanist, part heartthrob, and all 16th century stud, John Gerard, in his General History of Plants, said, with regards to the willows, that the leaves stay the spitting of blood and all other fluxes, that the boughs may be set about the beds of those that be sick of fevers, for they do mightily cool the heat of the air, and that the bark, being burnt to ashes and steeped in vinegar, takes away corns and other like risings in the feet and toes. A quick thank you to Al Petrie, surely the only person alive capable of vocally embodying my Elizabethan heartthrob. Now, all of that may sound like the ramblings of someone more inclined to practice wicker rather than make wicker, but never doubt John Gerard. Gerard talks sense. Salicylic acid was first discovered in the white willow. You've used it, I've used it. Horses have been seen to gnaw at willow bark to get at it. For salicylic acid is the key ingredient in a product that was first on sale to us in 1915. Aspirin. It is a drug so important that the World Health Organization placed it on their list of essential medicines. But this anti-inflammatory and pain-relieving secret predates aspirin, and it predates Gerard. There are records of willow bark being used to reduce fever written by Pliny the Elder in the 1st century AD, and from the 3rd millennia BC written upon Sumerian medicine tablets. However, from the plant's perspective... Salicylic acid does something else entirely. They are produced as a chemical defence in response to a pathogen's attack. Also, on top of this, these chemicals diffuse through the atmosphere where they are then detected by other plants of the same and of different species who in turn act similarly in advance of a possible oncoming attack. It could be described as a forest-wide immune response. Now, whether this is unintended, a side effect, or deliberate communication... We don't really know, but this interconnectivity between plants is the subject of huge scientific debate and is unbelievably awesome. 
Right, to wrap up this week's episode, I need to quickly show you how hugely Willow inspired Shakespeare, and there is masses to choose from. I could pick Viola, who in Twelfth Night swears to make a willow coffin to express the sorrow of her unrequited ardour. Or I could take Desdemona's willow song from Othello, which Shakespeare actually stole from a 1583 book of lute music. But no, here is perhaps my favourite piece of not only Shakespeare, but also nature writing in general. Richard maybe has got nothing on the bard. So, to end this week, here's Rena, who I had the great pleasure to call my onstage mum a couple of years ago, reading that there sad flowery bit of Gertrude from Hamlet. Next week, we'll start looking at the poplars, which are in the same family as the willow. So much like the Freudian interpretation of Hamlet, I'll probably be talking about sex again. So, until then, here's my mother. Enjoy. There is a willow grows askant the brook that shows his all leaves in the glassy stream. Therewith fantastic garlands did she make of crowflowers, nettles, daisies and long purples. The liberal shepherds give a grosser name, but our cold maids do dead men's fingers call them. There, on the pendant boughs, her crownet weeds clambering to hang, An envious sliver broke When down her weedy trophies and herself fell in the weeping brook Her clothes spread wide And mermaid-like a while they bore her up Which time she chanted snatches of old lords As one incapable of her own distress Or like a creature, native and endued unto that element But long it could not be Till that her garments, heavy with their drink, Pulled the poor wretch from her melodious lay to muddy death. Thank you, Rena. Now, I know I said I would end on that extract of Shakespeare, so see this is a postscript, an addendum, but I just thought it was relevant today's trees to end on this note. Kew Gardens, as part of a ten-year manifesto, has just pledged to decolonise their collection. Embarking on expeditions in the name of science, colonial botanists were more often than not fueled by finding economically profitable plants rather than simply exploring for science alone. As such, Kew have quite rightly asserted that the many plants in theirs and other botanical gardens collections were acquired through an association, direct or indirect, with the exploitation of indigenous communities. Kew have set themselves numerous challenges to acknowledge or at best redress this unfortunate past. History cannot be changed, but it can and it must be learned from. There will be a link to this 10-year manifesto from Q on our website, treesacrowd.fm. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.